From their gingerbread towers to their jigsaw doorways, early mental hospitals were solidly built custodial institutions, asylums where the insane could be safely secluded for years, perhaps for life. on the grass The lunatic is on the grass Remembering games and daisy chains and laughs Got to keep the lunas on the path Cinema has long been bad news for the mentally ill, typically representing them as crazed, dangerous lunatics in need of heavy medication and restraint, or worse. This goes double for the facilities that house them. If the movies are to be believed, then insane asylums are nothing more than cold, dark, nightmarish prisons run by cruel sadists who use drugs, shock therapy, and lobotomies to dominate their helpless patients. Nobody was ever cured, and no one was ever set free. But why were they represented this way? When did cinemas start viewing mental institutions as being, well, so damn crazy? On this episode of Slums of Film History, we'll attempt to find out why. So join us as we enter Insane Asylums. The lunatic is in my head You raise the blade You make the change You rearrange me till I'm sane This is Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is normally not discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and the school's the other. We discuss everything from S&M Nazis to murderous children to big-ass insects. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hey, Slate. Hi, Tom. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Good. I'm excited about this episode because this is my first viewer-suggested episode. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. Right. A long-time listener, AJ, suggested this way back in season two before I we even... I think it was season one, it to be been. honest. Really? It was It was our first suggestion ever that we got on yeah. topics, and we've been talking about doing this, you know, for, for four seasons now, so... So here we are. Finally... We are fulfilling AJ's request. So this one's for you, AJ. Thanks for the suggestion. Sorry it took us four seasons to get to it, but but here we better are. Better late than never. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And before we get started, I'm going to set a few rules for this one, like I do with all episodes. Yeah, was, you've got a shitload of movies to talk about. So Right, so I narrowed it down a little bit. And the way I did that was... I'm only talking about movies where the majority takes place inside of an insane asylum. Okay. And the reason I'm doing that is there's so many movies where, like the beginning of the movie, they, somebody leaves an insane asylum or there's a portion of the movie about an insane asylum mm-hmm. or mental institution, whatever you want to call it. And I, there's just so fucking many of those that I'm like, I got to narrow yeah, this sure. down. So I'm really looking at the movies where 
that's where the setting is, is in an insane asylum. So okay. the majority will take place in there. Totally fair. So to get started, let's go back in time a little bit because I'm going to kind of give you abbreviated history on mental institutions slash insane asylums, oh, whatever you want to call them. Sounds yeah. thrilling. So going way back in time, for starters, there are actually some cases as early as the ninth century where mentally ill persons were cared for in hospitals. Like places like Cairo, for instance, had areas where the mentally unstable or whatever were housed. Okay. Medieval Europe also cared for the mentally ill in places such as monasteries. A few towns had towers where madmen were kept that were called fool's towers. The ancient Parisian hotel, Hotel Dieu, which I probably said it wrong. Also, well, Hotel Dieu. Dieu. Bonjour. Yeah. Welcome to Hotel Dieu. Your accent is impeccable. I know. That's Five amazing. years of French. Yeah, it totally paid off. Thanks, public school system. So the Hotel Dieu also had a number of cells set aside for lunatics, quote unquote. So these are just a few examples. I could go into a whole bunch of medieval techniques and places where they treated the mentally ill, but I'm not going to. Where I really want to start our story is here in America with what was characterized as the first insane asylum. The mentally ill in early American communities were generally cared for by family members. However, in severe cases, they sometimes ended up in almshouses and jails. Mm-hmm. They were jailed most of the time. Because mental illness was generally thought to be caused by like a moral or spiritual failing, punishment and shame were often handed down to the mentally ill. Of sure. Course. So there was a religious aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, punishment and shame was a big way of handling that. Which Still of course, kind of is, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that was handed down to their families as well. So it's kind of fucked up. Yeah. As the population grew and some areas became more densely settled, mental illness became one of the number of social issues for which community institutions were created to handle this stuff. Mm-hmm. And with these people. So I'm going to start in 1752 because that's when the Quakers in Philadelphia were the first in the U.S. or America to make an organized effort to care for the mentally ill. They were the first ones to really do it. The newly opened Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia provided rooms in the basement complete with shackles attached to the walls to house a small number of mentally ill patients. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I like a, I like a place where I can nice, easily get shackled. shackled. Yeah, 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 yeah. You want a nice, comfortable environment to have your ass shackled. Within a year or two, the press for admissions required additional space, and so a whole new ward, you know, they moved the shackles to a new ward Mm -hmm. instead of just the basement, so they upgraded. That's great. So here's a fun fact. The first actual hospital that was dedicated to psychiatric help, the first psychiatric hospital, that is, was opened on October 2nd, 1773, and it was none other than Eastern State Hospital in Williamsburg, Virginia. Oh, really? Virginia's own Eastern State. It's like a little hometown story for you and me. That's funny, because for our listeners, that's where Tom and I met. Yeah, at Eastern State. Yeah, that's not funny. We're making fun of mentally unstable people. My guess is this will not be the first nor the last time we make a joke at the expense of mental unstable people i'm gonna to try to keep it at a minimum but it's gonna happen we'll see i'm undecided yeah so it is still operational today As a matter of fact that was the that was the joke when i was growing up in that area was that oh. you're gonna they're gonna send you to eastern state because you're fucking crazy or whatever that uh-huh. was you know oh sure yeah 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 so and according to the hospital's website it is the first national public facility built with the intention of solely treating patients with mental illness like i said it was originally called the Public Hospital for Persons of Insane and Disordered Minds. Got a really nice ring to and it. And a nice, yeah. I like that. It's a, it's a long title. Mm-hmm. They just shorten it to Stop laughing. State. You're laughing. Fuck. Stop laughing. I'm trying not to. The building had 24 cells for male and female patients who were dangerous but had a chance of being treated. According to the Colonial Williamsburg website, treatments available at the hospital were restraint, strong drugs, plunge baths, and other shock water treatment, bleeding and blistering salves, fun, Mm -hmm. as well as an electrostatic machine. According to the site, 20% of patients were cured and discharged between 1773 and 1790. Hmm. 
Sounds like a lovely, lovely place. Tried and true. The nation's second psychiatric hospital, Spring Grove Hospital, opened in Baltimore in 1798, just before the turn of the century. Spring Grove opened as a public hospital in Baltimore, according to the hospital's website. And I bring this up just because I want to read what their purpose is, which is to provide for the relief of the indigent sick persons and for the reception and care of lunatics. Uh Uh-huh. Sure. It's a nice tagline. Yeah. And then soon after all this, you know, New York opened one, a bunch of other states opened mental institutions. And then roughly 100 years later, by 1890, every state had a mental institution. And by the mid-20th century, mental hospitals housed about 500,000 patients overall. Jeez. Yeah, a lot of fucking people. But let's talk treatment. So early diagnosis of mental disorders were usually called, like I said, moral or spiritual disorders and were usually treated accordingly. There was sometimes a religious bent, as I said, to it. And sometimes things like exorcisms were performed and that didn't probably go very well. Yeah, I love a good exorcism though. But surprisingly, in a lot of the early U.S. institutions, superintendents were familiar with their patients and their backgrounds and would have a treatment plan for them. So although there was still moral therapy, there was still that effort to actually treat somebody so Mm -hmm. that they can be released back into society. Uh Sure. Instead of just being like, throw them in a dungeon, basically, and let them them and leave them there. Yeah, yeah. But of course, they still had shit like bloodletting, cold baths, and they use morphine and shit. So Mm -hmm. they still had this other stuff. I mean, I'd want morphine, so. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. But then problems started arising. As I I said before, the population started getting bigger and bigger, and more folks were being housed in these facilities. So it was at that point, it stopped becoming a place of treatment and release and more of just a place to house crazy people. Mm-hmm. Treatment pretty much just went away. You know, it just became keeping them docile and keeping them in the facility. And so all these programs just kind of went out the window. And just to give you an idea of how many patients were in asylums, I said 500,000 by mid 20th century. But for instance, in 1820s, on average, 57 patients were admitted to each asylum. By the 1870s, that number had rose to 473. So 50 years later, it was a fucking a massive amount of growth. Yeah. Also, fewer and fewer people were released from asylums, as I said. Chronic cases were common. Institutions became filthy and had horrible conditions. Patients were regularly abused and neglected. And here's a note in history. In 1841, Dorothea Dix, I don't know if you know who she is. Yeah, it sounds familiar. Yeah, she was a pivotal figure in the mental health reform. She began touring hospitals and other institutions where individuals with mental illness were housed. She was appalled by the devastating conditions where they had, for example, like people put in closets, chained the walls, as I mentioned, and poorly fed and beaten. It was horrible. Dix would travel to almost all the states, and her writings led to reforms and improvements in living conditions of the poor people with mental illness. So she did a lot of good. Another famous example, and this is a real important one because you'll see this come up again, is uh, Nellie Bly. Do you know who she is? I don't think so. So in 1887, she was a journalist at the New York World newspaper. That was a newspaper owned by Joseph Pulitzer. And she decided to take an undercover assignment in which she agreed to feign insanity to investigate reports of brutality and neglect at the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island, which was in New York. She faked being crazy, and that's all it took. Then she was thrown into this asylum where she lived for 10 days, and she took note of things like the food was gruel, they had spoiled beef, bread was moldy, dry, and nasty, the water was undrinkable, the dangerous patients were tied together with ropes, the patients were made to sit for much of the day on hard benches with no protection from the cold, rats were everywhere, bath water was really cold and dirty, the nurses behaved obnoxiously and they were abusive, telling patients to shut up and beating them if they didn't. Speaking with her fellow patients, Bly was convinced some of them were sane, actually, and they were just locked in there with no way to get out. After, I said, 10 days, she was released, and then she published her book, 10 Days in a Madhouse. It caused a huge fucking sensation. Yeah, but... And brought her lasting fame, and a grand jury launched its own investigation into the conditions at the asylum. 
It did some good and it brought about some real change, but this of course is not the end of mistreatment in asylums. And it definitely didn't do anything to tamp down, you know, the stereotype that was starting to take effect that these places were just horrible, yeah, horrible sure. institutions. But you know what? I haven't even talked about movies yet. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the first cinematic representation of persons with mental illness. I'm ready. Okay. So the first movies that were made that dealt with mental illness were actually medical documentaries. And these were studies that were very similar to the Moybridge documentaries sure. of human movement, horse movement, that were done with the cinematograph. Is that what he used? Or Zupraxiscope? Zupraxiscope, yeah. Okay, so this person I'm about to talk about used the cinematograph, which was between the Zupraxiscope and modern movie camera. This was a very early version. I mentioned it before in another podcast. But anyway... What this guy would do, his name was Dr. W. Chase. I think it's William Chase, but I couldn't find it. He would take a group of patients who were suffering from neurological disorders where they would have like convulsions and violent movement, mm-hmm. and he would film that, and this happened in 1905. So he actually did a, a number of documentaries filming that and brought it to medical schools, and people could observe that. Got it. So with the help of this new technology of the cinematograph, where they could record movement and students and physicians could observe behavior of psychiatric patients. It looked like this would be the next big thing. It didn't really catch on. And so it just kind of fell in favor. And, you know, these type of documentaries really didn't take off. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, it became so rare that in the years between World War One and World War II, only two films featuring persons with psychiatric disabilities were worth noting. And these films weren't documentaries. They were actual fictional films. The documentary thing had long fallen out of fashion, so people just stopped making those. But these two fictional films were really the only two worth giving a shit about. Mm-hmm. The first one was a Japanese film called, and I'm not going to say the Japanese name, I'm going to fuck it up, but the translation is A Page of Madness, and that was from 1926. Okay. It was a silent film set in a mental institution. Mm-hmm. It was the first movie that tried to use you know like different lenses different filming techniques uh strange angles all that shit in order to try to convey what it was like having a mental illness on film so I see, you know, yeah. like surrealism and stuff like that to show this is what it feels like to suffer from this mm-hmm. so it's a very bizarre surreal movie it's even weirder because it doesn't have any end titles which as i mentioned before silent films that's the little title card that comes up that explains what the fuck you're watching right sure didn't have any no sound so yeah. it's all just bizarre imagery that Ooh, i guess you have to piece together cool, yeah. but fun fact this movie was lost for 45 years until it was rediscovered in some storehouse in 1971 oh we talked about we that. we just talked yeah, about yeah. that didn't oh, we where like somebody pornography it's like a pornography graphic story to my ears yeah <laughs> yeah i love it somebody found it in a box and said yeah. holy shit what oh, is this and there you that. go my next film comes from nazi fucking germany of course as we discussed before in fun with nazis hitler was a, a big fan of film and he also realized that it was a powerful propaganda tool so around the late 30s he used films in an attempt to influence public opinion to the nazi point of view and in this cause he was trying to use film to justify and normalize the idea of exterminating hundreds of thousands of children and adults with psychiatric and neurodevelopmental disabilities between 1935 and 1937 some documentaries were produced to instill the fear of mentally disabled you know in the public to show them mm-hmm. it didn't really catch on probably because a lot of these films were just poorly produced not really done very well right. and it just didn't it just, the it idea didn't catch on it didn't yeah. catch on because they just didn't really do a good job with them so we commissioned a film director named Herman Schwinginger 
I said that wrong, I'm sure, to produce a feature-length pseudo-documentary about the plight of institutionalized persons and the need to dispose of them. So mm-hmm. he's like, we need a bigger budget and a real director because these little shitty ones, that home movie right. ones, just aren't cutting it. So the movie I'm talking about has a number of working titles. The The main one is called Existence Without Life. Another one's called Unworthy Lives. And it was never actually released. However, an initial cut of this film was shown to Hitler and some of his closest associates in July of 1939, which prompted the decision to proceed with the wholesale extermination of inmates and mental institutions in August of 1939. So he showed hmm. it to all of his closest personnel and he's like, oh, shit, I guess we need to start killing motherfuckers right. that have yeah. mental disorders. I don't want to spend too much time on this film, but I want to say it's on YouTube and it's fucked up. Essentially, it displays individuals with psychiatric problems and physical developmental issues as well, and it tries to make the argument of why they are just better off dead. It's just, it's fucked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? I'll skip it. Yeah, it's, you don't need to say that. Anyway, fuck the Nazis, yeah, man. Yeah, fuck them. Yeah, yeah. At this point, I want to deviate and talk about two points that seem to be recurring in movies about insane asylums. The first is electroconvulsive therapy, known as shock treatment, and the other one is lobotomy. Mm-hmm. And I want to bring those up because those seem to be the two big things associated with the horrors of insane asylums. Mm-hmm. And they come up in the next films I'm going to talk about. Electroconvulsive therapy, if you don't know what that is, which is formerly known as electroshock therapy, is often referred to as shock treatment, as I said. And it's the psychiatric treatment in which seizures are electrically induced in patients to provide relief from mental disorders. Mm-hmm. It was first conducted in 1938, and it was actually pretty mild and is usually successful. Uh, but there's this terrible stigma attached to it. In the 1940s and early 50s, ECT, as it's known, was usually given in an unmodified form without muscle relaxants. So I think that's why this horrible stigma is attached to it, in which when people get electrocuted, they tense up and they jerk, which makes it look like they're in a lot of pain. Uh-huh. But it's just that's just the body's reaction to it. Are you basically trying to say that like electroshock therapy is like a really great thing? I'm saying it was an effective treatment that was used that wasn't like the horror movie treatments, but I think it got a stigma on it. It's still being used for like severe depression. Yeah. But what I'm saying is it's got the stigma to it. It does. And it's probably not completely deserved. Now, Uh early, early, early forms of it, okay, maybe. But considering how it's been used for the last almost 100 years, no. I can't wait till you're like, and here's all the great things about getting a lobotomy, too. Electroshock therapy prescribed by the psychiatrist and administered by the physician is a well-known method of bringing the patient back to reality. When it's followed up by other treatments, Electric shock may mean early recovery for many types of mental illness. So a lobotomy, also known as leucotomy, is a neurological operation that involves severing connections in the brain's frontal lobe. Mm -hmm. It was used to treat severe mental conditions that couldn't be treated otherwise. I think people that were really, really violent and had violent outbursts or whatever, Mm -hmm. or maybe severe like convulsions or something. At the time, the first operation was considered a success since there appeared to be a reduction in the symptoms of severe paranoia and other things. However, the backlash came when the side effects appeared. Yeah, it would cure that effect, but it would also give other effects such as apathy, passivity, lack of initiative, poor ability to concentrate, and generally decreased depth of intensity of their emotional response. Mm-hmm. The use of the procedure increased dramatically from the early 40s and the 50s. This is important going forward. By 1951, almost 20,000 lobotomies had been performed in the United States alone. Following the introduction of antipsychotic medications in the mid-50s, lobotomies pretty much just dropped. They were done. And they are not around anymore. Right. They do not do them. They pretty much peaked in the 50s, and then they were like, we're glad we don't have to do this anymore because it's fucked up. So yep. 
This isn't the fun world of lobotomies. No, damn it. Nope. All right, so moving forward, the next narrative film I want to talk about is called The Snake Pit, and that came out in 1948. Now, this one's different, and it's interesting that it's so early in how it treats mental institutions because this one is actually not a horror movie in any way. It's not a movie about abuse or any of the horrors of a mental institution. It's actually about the nervous breakdown of this young woman named Virginia, and she's afflicted by like this repressed childhood trauma. A doctor treats her with this, this new era of psychotherapy. The mental hospital that she goes to is organized by these different levels, right? So there's like level one, and you move up levels. That's how they do it. So she's at level one, and while she's at level one, there's this mean nurse that doesn't like her and fucks with her or whatever. So she says that this person can't be treated, that Virginia's fucked up. And so she throws her in what is known as the snake pit, which is the place where incurable patients go. Mm -hmm. They straitjacket her, and they throw her in there in the, the equivalent of a rubber room. The doctor learns of this and I think helps her return to level one, and then basically she gets therapy, and she gets insight and understanding and is able to leave the hospital. So at the end, she actually leaves the hospital. Oh, a very positive yeah. movie Happy on that subject. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fun fact, she does receive electroshock therapy in this film as part of her treatment, but it is shown as effective and positive for her recovery. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying. I just love that this is like your cause and I'm making fun of you because and of that's, that. And that's yeah. perfectly Great. fine. That's, that's fair. The Snake Pit comes to the screen with one of the finest casts that has ever been assembled. The starring role is perfect for Olivia de Havilland, her first since she won the Academy Award. Those who have seen her in The Snake Pit predict new triumphs for this talented actress. Her portrayal of the young girl who passes through the terrors of a mental breakdown to fulfill a happy romance is certainly the most challenging role ever played by a woman. Snake Pit got good reception when it was released and supposedly shows a fair representation of mental hospitals, as well as depiction of schizophrenia and the performance of the character Virginia, who was played by Olivia de Havilland. Hmm, mm -hmm. Another fun fact, much of the movie was filmed in the Camarillo State Mental Hospital in California, so hmm. they actually used a real location. Yeah. It won the Academy Award for Best Sound Recording and was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role for Olivia de Havilland, Best Director, Best Music, Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, Best Picture, and Best Writing. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty kick-ass. Yeah. So let's move on to the 60s, and probably one of the reasons why I did this episode. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the movie Shock Quarter from sure. 1963. Classic. Shock Corridor. The medical jungle doctors don't talk about. Shock Corridor. The incredibly realistic story that reveals the strange intrigues, the criminal impulses, the obsessions that explode into violence. Then there was a day Johnny was trapped in the ward of love-maddened women. He's mine. He's mine. So this was directed by Sam Fuller, and it's about this guy who wants to win a, a Pulitzer Prize, so he commits himself to a mental institution to solve a strange and unclear murder. He convinces an expert psychiatrist to coach him to appear insane, which, oddly enough, involves relating imaginary accounts of incest with his sister, uh -huh. who I guess he, he uses his girlfriend to play that role or oh, whatever, yeah. and is then locked up in the institution where the murder took place. While pursuing his investigation, he is disturbed by the behavior of his fellow inmates. So this sounds like a pretty basic premise, doesn't it? This sounds exactly like the Nellie Bly thing, where yeah. somebody who's sane, who wants to write an article about it, gets themselves locked up in a mental institution. Unfortunately, this one has a much darker conclusion. Do you mm -hmm. remember? I do. Shock order, you want to yeah. talk about it? No, you go ahead. All right, essentially, I think he gets lobotomized or electrotherapied mm -hmm. at the end, and yep. he's suddenly part of the asylum. He never gets out of it. I think. I think shock quarter was pretty shocking, no pun intended. Yep. At the time, 
And fun fact, in 1996, Shot Corridor was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry for the Library of Congress. Yep. Real quick word on actual treatment in the 60s, only to say that President Kennedy was a big advocate for reform in mental institutions. As it turned out, he had personal stake in that because his sister had gotten a lobotomy at the age of 23, like in 1954. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, me neither. So obviously he really cared about this subject and had pushed to get a lot of funding, a lot of reform. So, and he did. Mm-hmm. And also at that time, just to put in perspective, there was about 600,000 people in mental institutions across America. Jesus. All right, so the next movie I want to talk about is from 1970. And it's so fucking bizarre I have to talk about this movie. It's called Even Dwarves Started Small. And that's a 1970 movie that was written, produced, and directed by Werner Herzog. Mm-hmm. Oh, Werner Herzog. Werner. Yeah. It was his second movie. And it's about a group of dwarves confined in an institution on this remote island. And they rebel against the guards and the director. And they, like, they go around and break windows and wreck cars. And they have food fights, and they just do weird shit, mm-hmm. and just rebel. It's just the weirdest fucking movie I've ever seen. Is it just like watching small people do funny things? Like, is that kind of the shtick of it? Yeah, but then it gets kind of horrifying, too, because there's a, a scene where they like kill this large pig, they torment these blind dwarves, and then they perform a mock crucifixion on a monkey. Hmm. So they walk around this crucifixion where there's burning garbage around, and there's monkeys on there. They didn't like nail it on there. It's just tied up. But then it tries to get free because no monkey wants to do that. Right. So you can clearly see this monkey is not happy being in this movie in a crucifixion. Okay. Yeah. It's a nutty ass movie. But the trope that I think this represents is the inmates taking over the asylum, overpowering the guards, and then they're free. Sure. You know. Fun fact, while filming the scene where this van that drives in circles with no one at the wheel... One of the actors was run over, but he was uninjured. But then during one of the flower burning scenes, because they had all these flowers that were burning, the same actor caught on fire. <laughs> this guy's got really bad luck. And Werner Herzog had to go over there and beat the fire up. The actor only had minor injuries from the fire, so I guess, you know, he made it. Yeah. But it's like, that's bad luck. <laughs> Ouch. And in one interview around 2009, Harmony Corrine cited that this is the greatest movie ever made. Uh-huh, that makes he sense. He would yeah. say that. So my next movie I want to talk about is a horror movie, and it's called Don't Look in the Basement from 1972. I know this one. Why do I know this one? I don't know. You might have seen it before. There was a sequel to it that came out Talk about it for a second. All right, so it's about this nurse named Charlotte, and she goes to this sanitarium. It's called Stevens Sanitarium to work, only to learn that Stevens, the doctor, who I guess it was named after, was murdered by one of his patients, and a successor named Dr. Masters is not very eager to take on new staff. Charlotte finds her job maddeningly hard as the patients torment and harass her at every turn. This is the description. Mm -hmm. And she soon learns why Dr. Masters is so eager to keep outsiders out. So as it turns out, and this is another trope. Dr. Masters is actually another patient playing as the administrator in this asylum. So this other woman who comes back to work there, she's thinking this is a new doctor, is actually one of the patients who sort of just like was given control by the other patients mm-hmm. to run the place. So then she gets kidnapped. Charlotte does, the, the girl that didn't know what was going on. And Dr. Masters, who's the fake administrator, fucks with people and kind of tortures people or whatever. But then this rebellion happens and then the crazies take over the asylum and then like a bunch of people get murdered and Charlotte gets away okay. so it's, it's that trope where you find out like near the end of the movie that actually the person who's running the hospital is one of the inmates between sanity and madness can be crossed in a single step on the day the insane took over the asylum don't look in the basement rated r 
looking it up online and I don't know what, what my connection to this movie is because <laughs> I don't know any of the actors, the director, or anything, but this came up somewhere. Where is it? I, I think know. it was a video nasty, actually. Oh, it was one it of those was. video nasties. Yeah. And it's poorly done. It's like snuff level cinematography. Yeah, I said it's really like a, shitty. Yeah. It's really horrible. Yeah. There you go. Okay. The movie, I had to talk about it just because it had that trope again of, you know, I'm running this asylum. I'm a doctor. And it turns out you're just a fucking crazy patient. Mm-hmm. You're delusional. So that comes up again, too. So we'll talk about that going forward. Yep. And my next movie is probably the most famous crazy person movie of all time, mm-hmm. which would be what? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Exactly. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975. His name is R.P. McMurphy. He's being confined to the state mental hospital. Jack Nicholson is R.P. McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He took a group of helpless, lost, and broken men and showed them how to live again. If he's crazy, what does that make you? Everyone should know what this movie is, but I'm going to explain it anyway. So it was a film directed by Milo's Foreman. It's based on a 1962 novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, by Ken Kesey, and I'll talk about him later on. But the film stars Jack Nicholson. It takes place in Oregon in 1963. He's this criminal who is serving a short sentence on a prison farm for statutory rape of a 15-year-old. That's fucked up. Mm-hmm. He's not actually mentally ill, but he wants to get out of the prison, and he thinks life in the mental institution is easier. So he fakes being mentally ill, and it works. They throw him in this asylum. Upon arriving at the hospital, he finds the ward run by the steely strict nurse Ratchet, who's like part of the oppressive authority that runs the hospital. Mm-hmm. And that's like the immediate trope of the bitch, awful yeah. nurse. All, they're all based on her, really. Yeah. And probably on. where the term Ratchet came from. Right. Yeah. That bitch is Ratchet. Yeah. So as time goes on, he starts riling up the other patients, starts getting them to do crazy shit with them. At one point, I think they steal a truck and go fishing. They do, yeah. You know, he keeps upending the strict authority. And so that's what the whole movie really is about. It's sort of about oppressive authority and free thinkers in an insane asylum setting. Right. Do you want to talk about it? Like, you know, kind of what happens? No, not necessarily. I just, one of the things that I love about the movie is that it's one of the only three movies that won all the top five Oscars. Yeah. That's Best Director, Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Actor, and Actress. Was that L- Louise Fletcher, right? Is mm-hmm. the Yeah, yeah. I just love that. And do you know what the other two are? I do. Uh-huh. So one is It Happened One Night. Uh-huh. And the other one is Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. I always get it wrong. I always say it's all about Eve, which is not right. It's It Happened One Night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, only three of those movies, and that was one of them. Yep. It's a really good movie. Jack it's Nicholson is wonderful. Really, and it, really great. It's also got an ending, and I'm going to spoil the ending. Because it's fucked up. The Mm -hmm. ending is finally after they're tired of him causing what is essentially riots, he gets lobotomized. Yeah. And he's just like... And Chief dies, doesn't he? No. What happens is Chief, who's this Native American that's in the asylum with him, and he's also, I think, the narrator in the book. Mm -hmm. I think he's the character you follow in the book that's telling the story. He ends up smothering him mm-hmm. and putting him out of his misery. So, oh, and then he right, like throws right. a like a water fountain through the window and escapes. But I don't know if he gets caught soon after. Or oh, he's that's right. Gone. Chief gets out. Chief gets yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he breaks out. So yeah, I mean, it's a wonderfully done movie. Yep. It could also be argued that it's not a good representation of psychiatric hospitals. No, I mean, obviously, not. it's not in the trope that they're abusive and that it's an oppressive environment. But one of the things that it does, and that a lot of movies that, and I don't talk about a lot of these other movies, this is the main one that that talks about this, is that these facilities are keeping your spirit down. Mm-hmm. It perpetuates the myth that asylums are places where one can enter but never leave, and which like the aim is not to cure but you know to subjugate people. Sure. And that psychiatrists are demons, just strict taskmasters. 
characters, you know. So I'm not saying those people don't exist, but this movie's like the pinnacle of that. Right, right. It really kind of cements that too because it's got such accolades and it is such a really good fucking movie. Mm-hmm. But it's also got that negative side to it. But anyway, fun fact, this was also selected for the film registry. Yeah. Another fun fact, writer Ken Kesey, he has his own weird fucking story. The guy who wrote the book, mm-hmm. his story, you know, he basically started a commune with a bunch of fucking hippies and so he basically got in a bus and drove across country doing hippie shit. This stuff's captured in a book called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test that was written by Tom Wolfe. Oh, really? Yeah, that was about novelist Ken Kesey. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. It's just, it's bizarre. But yeah, this book pretty much financed his hippie shit. Well, yeah. Gotta make that hippie money. Yeah, gotta make that hippie money. <laughs> so my next movie is the one I'm most excited to talk about. Okay. The next movie is from 1977, and it's called Wanda the Wicked Warden. Or maybe its other title might perk up your ears because its other title is Ilsa the Wicked Warden. Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ilsa. This was, this was an Ilsa movie I didn't even know existed. Yeah. It stars Diana Thorne, who plays in all the Ilsa movies. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we talk about the Ilsa movies all the time. Uh, the last time we talked about it was in the Fun with Nazis episode. And, you know, it's Ilsa, the she-wolf of the SS, and she's in charge of this death camp. It's a women in prison film, but it takes place in, like, Nazi Germany. And we talked all about that. But it's interesting is that, like, these Ilsa movies, there's a whole series of them and one of them is this movie which is Ilsa the Wicked Warden aka Wanda the Wicked Warden and it's about Ilsa works as a warden in a psychiatric hospital for young women unbeknownst to her her patient Abby is actually the sister of one of the other patients Abby has lied in order to get herself admitted so she can find out what became of her sister and hopefully rescue her mm-hmm. so it's another sane person right, being sure, in, in the hospital yeah, yeah. However, she's unaware that Ilsa uses the hospital's inmates to create pornography, often against their will. Hmm, that sounds good. Yeah, I know. Abby finds herself at the mercy of Joanna, which is Ilsa's lover and leader of several of the hospital's inmates. Joanna tries hard to make Abby respond to her advances, but after she refuses, begins to exploit her. It's another women in prison film that just takes place in a psychiatric right, hospital. Sure. And is, you know, lots of lesbian sex and nudity. It's and so exploitive and bondage and, and it's sma- so, beatings and smacking yeah, around. Yeah. And electrotherapy being tortured. Right. It's a, a fucking Ilsa movie. I love that the Ilsa movies exist. It's like one of my favorite <laughs> so, things. They do nothing for me, but like I just love that it's a that they exist in the world. Ilsa, man. Yeah. Cruel, sadistic, tyrannically insane. Protected by the authorities, she is free to reign over an hallucinatory world, a fraudulent mental clinic for sexual delinquents. Who is the boss? Rock, listen to her. Wonder. The Wicked Warden. Of course there would be an Ilsa movie in a psychiatric. Of course. Totally makes sense. And at the very end, and I gotta spoil this movie, so, you know, well, let me just say this. At the end of these movies, I think something terrible always happens to Ilsa. Yeah. Even though she's the same person, same character in all these movies, I think she dies at the end of all of them. Mm -hmm. She's like Kenny from South Park. But in this movie, what happens is all the crazy people start going against her, and they basically tie her down and, like, eat her. (laughs) I think Ilsa gets eaten to death uh-huh. at the end because of that's what Ilsa people with psychiatric problems are also nuts. cannibals. Yeah, yeah, they right. <laughs> so it's amazing. Ilsa and the Wicked Warden. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, it's amazing. So doesn't do anything for the depiction of psychiatric hospitals or insane asylums, as you can imagine. I still want to see it. Yeah, you can watch it. We'll yeah. find it. All right. Let me move on to the 80s. And what I want to talk about real quick is a reflection of how psychiatric care is treated in the 80s real quick. So it's the year of Ronald Reagan. A lot of cuts were made to psychiatric hospitals and care. A lot of folks were released, as you know, being in New York and, of course, me living in D.C., a lot of psychiatric patients, unfortunately, are now homeless on the street. Mm -hmm. 
And that, a lot of that came from the administration and the budget cuts and the way that the federal government paid less, which put the burden on states more, and overburdened states just had to let people go. Right. I mean, they gave them treatment plans, but somebody who doesn't have a job or anything is released on the street, they're not going to take medicine. No, or, sure. Unfortunately, yeah, that's that basically what we, the big homeless problem. Right. What we do with mentally unstable people now is we just force them out of on their the homes. Yeah. And, and never quite yeah. went away. So right. that's, yeah, the whole institution... An insane asylum thing just started leveling off. These places were closing down a lot in the 80s and 90s. Yep. And they're just not that many anymore. No. The, the ones that are there are all voluntary. So mm-hmm. it's not like you can, can really you commit, can't, somebody like, commit somebody anymore. Yeah. Really right. anymore. So that's kind of where we're at in the 80s. Mm-hmm. The next movie I want to talk about is called The Ninth Configuration from 1980. Mm-hmm. You ever heard of this movie? Nope. It was a film directed by William Peter Blatty, who mm-hmm. the wrote The Exorcist. Yep. And it's based off of his book of the same title. And it's about this remote castle, and I forgot where it was, but it's a place where crazy former Vietnam vets go to get treatment. Okay. And I guess the way the hospital does it is they let people kind of reenact certain things as treatment. So the film stars Stacy Keach, and he goes there, I think, as an administrator or whatever. But as it turns out, it goes through, he's actually there for treatment as well, and that's how they do it. So again, there's that trope of the person who looks like they're an authority figure or someone who's an administrator, but they're really a patient. Got which it. we will talk about that one going big forward. one coming up yeah. yeah we got a big one coming up one note about the actual hospitals it's an interesting environment it's kind of creepy just because it's a castle and it looks kind of cool and gothic but it's got these weird like robe statues throughout like that look kind of grim reaperish i don't really mm-hmm. know why they're there but the actual setting is pretty creepy yeah here, it doesn't so. seem like the great way to decorate a mental institution but no whatever but, but whatever yeah. you know so i just wanted to mention that movie and that it's a william peter blatty directed mm-hmm. movie which yeah. i didn't know he did that so my next movie I want to talk about, and I love this movie, is Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors from 1987. I don't think I've seen this one. Really? Yeah. I love this movie. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. So after the debacle of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, the gayest the gay, movie, the gay ever movie ever made, right. which totally fucked up the whole thing, they sort of did a, a step back and said, okay, what made Freddy work? And let's do that. So in this third installment of the Nightmare series, they got Wes Craven to come back and help write it. Mm-hmm. He didn't direct it, but he at least was involved in it. And, of course, it's got Robert England as Freddy, but it's also got Heather Langenkamp from the first movie, mm. who played the main person in the, mm-hmm. in the first movie. It's got Patricia Arquette in her first role and Larry Fishburne's in it. Didn't I just say that Patricia Arquette's first role was in Meatballs and or Gorp? No, it was Gorp. I don't know. I thought this was her debut role. We gotta, we're going to have to look it up. Yeah, either way, it's, it's an early role of Patricia Arquette. Mm-hmm. So the plot focuses on Freddy Krueger seeking to murder the last children of the parents of, that burned him, the Elm Street children. I guess a few of those kids are in this mental institution. Mm-hmm. And they all have, like, problems and shit. You know, one's, like, a former junkie. One's, like, burns themselves. One kid cuts themselves. One's mute. They all got these problems. They play all the stereotypes. All the of, stereotypes yeah. of these troubled teens. One girl, Patricia Arquette, has this power where she can drag people into her dreams. Mm-hmm. So Heather Langenkamp's character, Nancy, finds that out. She starts training them because she knows Freddy's after them. She starts training them to use like their powers and their dreams to fight him. So mm-hmm. Hence the dream warriors. So one thing to note in this movie, it stars a nurse ratchet type character who never believes the kids. And he's like, they need to be medicated. And she right, even sure. looks kind of like her, like a stern mean woman. They have that stereotype in there. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the rest of the hospital is pretty normal. Like Larry Fishburne's an orderly. He plays like a nice, decent guy. Mm-hmm. He never, and there's another doctor that's trying to help the kids. So overall, it's a positive, as positive as a Freddy movie can be about psychiatric hospitals. But of course, they had to have that fucking nurse ratchet type character in right, there that sure. doesn't believe them and thinks that the best thing for them is be medicated or whatever. Blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. It's a 
cheesy ass movie. It's got some pretty interesting kills. You know, it's got Freddy jam somebody's head in the TV. He's like, "Welcome to prime time, uh, bitch." Yeah, He's I got remember that. that yeah. you know? So I think it was the start of when Freddy started getting more campy mm-hmm. and having more one-liners than he used to have. So it's like the dawn of that. Right. And it's got some pretty amazing kills and some decent effects too. Actually, it's. it's I like it. It's I got watched some it again. Names too, and it's yeah. fun. It's got some decent names in too. And fun fact: the theme song "Dream Warriors" was written and performed by heavy metal group Dokken. Sure. Yeah, rocking like docking. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is the success of the single led to like the following sequels that have like a heavy metal song mm-hmm. attached to them. Sure. Like, yeah. oh, lightning strike twice. Now, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but you haven't seen Dream Warriors? I don't think I've seen it. No. Oh, it's fun. It's yeah. fun. That's right, great. I'm writing that one down. Yeah, you do. You need to. So my next film is Girl Interrupted from 1999. Oh yeah. That was based on writer Susanna Kaysen's account of her 18-month stay in a mental institution in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. The film stars Winona Ryder as Kaysen with supporting cast that includes Angelina Jolie, Brittany Oscar Murphy. Oscar winner Angelina Jolie. Uh-huh. Yeah, Oscar winner Angelina Jolie, Brittany Murphy, and Oscar winner Whoopi Goldberg. Uh-huh. So there you go. So Ryder's character has a nervous breakdown and takes an overdose of pills with a bottle of vodka. Although she denies that she tried to kill herself, claiming that the mini pills were for a quote-unquote headache, she does suffer from severe depression and lack of motivation. And so for her suicidal actions, they end up checking her into the psychiatric hospital. And, of course, she deals with all the other crazy people. Brittany Murphy, who is a victim of sex abuse. Yeah, her father, like, yeah, that's fucked up. She's good in it. Yeah, she is good in it. And she has this eating disorder, too. It's all fucked up. like a chicken thing, wasn't it? Angelina Jolie is like a rebellious, hateful sociopath. Yeah, and she won the Oscar for it where she kissed her brother. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. So weird. But the the way the story goes, Angelina Jolie's character and Winona Ryder's character sort of form a bond and they're buddies until that just goes to shit. Right. And then I think Angelina's character kind of tried to kill her or something mm-hmm. or make her yep. look like she killed herself. It's a fucked up movie. It's a good movie. But it's a really good movie. Yep. And again, it's sort of like Snake Pit in that she does eventually commit to her therapy and leave in spite of all the issues she has to deal with her fellow inmates. And it's also an interesting switch, too, because it's not the facility that's the problem. It's not the administrator. It's not the form of care her issue is the other fucking inmates. Right, yeah. You know, that are the antagonists of this whole thing, specifically Angelina Jolie's character, who she does a wonderful job. She deserved Oscar for that. That's great. Yeah, she was really good. It was a showy role. It was a showy Oscars role. Oscars love that, you know? Yeah. yeah. And they dirtied her up and made her look trashy. Yeah. And it was, it was great. It was a good role for her. But it was a really good movie, and I think a fair movie overall of how these facilities work, and Winona Ryder's character got the therapy she needed. Mm-hmm. Moving yeah. on. The next movie I want to talk about is another horror movie, and it's Session 9 from 2001. Session 9, yeah. So it's a, an American independent psychological horror film, and it stars David Caruso. Mm-hmm. Which, oh yeah, I know. And a bunch of other people, I don't know who the hell they are. But anyway, what it's about is these guys that are going to this old mental institution to clean out the asbestos. I guess they're either going to try to reopen or do something. Mm -hmm. They have a job to clean this out. And as they go through there, one of the guys, I think David Crusoe, finds these audio tapes of a session, different session numbers. And as it progresses, it gets like very surreal and sort of supernaturally mm-hmm. and then murder happens or whatever blah 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 it's really creepy but the main reason it's creepy is because it was filmed in an actual abandoned mental hospital it's, it was filmed in danvers state mental hospital in massachusetts and it's it's creepy as fuck it was opened in like 1878 and closed in 1991 and it's still i think since the film came out it's 
mostly demolished now. Yeah. Have you seen this one? Yeah, but it's, you know, what, what year is it from? 2001, so it's been uh-huh. out for a while. Yeah, I remember it, but only vaguely. Fun fact on that movie, it was filmed in a small part of that abandoned mental institution. According to David Caruso, the rest of the building was unsafe for shooting. Maybe it actually really had real asbestos or it just it was structural problems. It was just like falling apart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they didn't really even need any props. Like everything that they used was pretty much already there. Oh, wow. And it was a really creepy place. Efficient. So fun fact, I have a story about this. Okay. I just saw the movie like a couple years ago, but a few years before that, there was this old mental hospital not too far from where I lived in Maryland. Mm-hmm. And it was the Forest Haven Mental Institution, and I forgot where in Maryland, but it wasn't far from me. It's close to Fort Meade, so yeah. for, for you urban explorers out there. It was closed in 1991, and the reason it was closed was because there were like all these like deaths. It wasn't like serial killer deaths. It was like neglect because they had untrained yeah. people, and it was a child care place. And it was fucked up because the children, some of them just never left there. So they had adults there. And abuse and all these bad things happen. And a lot of children like got infections because they would feed them lying down. It's it's fucked up. It's yeah, a fucked it's just up, a shitty fucked situation. Up yeah. So when I was married, my wife, ex-wife, as you know her, she was a photographer. So mm-hmm. we snuck in there. Yeah. And did some photography shit, and it was creepy fucking shit. Yeah, I remember the picture. It was, it was yeah. super interesting. Yeah. yeah, but it was creepy as fuck. They had things like adult-sized cribs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was makes me want to die. Oh, it was fucking horrible. Yeah, I mean, there's great pictures, but it's fucking horrible. Yeah. So yeah, maybe I'll put mm-hmm. some pictures on the site and share with the listeners. Yeah, you took care. some really great pictures out there. Yeah, it was, it was cool. you couldn't not everywhere you turned. There were it was ones creepy. that I was like, you staged this, and you were like, no, I didn't. Like, no. We didn't touch anything there. Yeah, so we didn't cool. move shit. We just. Yeah. But other people have been there and probably moved a bunch of stuff. I mean, and that's the problem with it now with this whole urban explorer thing. Mm-hmm. So many people have been there that like the security is all over it because there's one part on the far side of that campus that is still being used mm-hmm. you know like for rehab or something but as a result they still have like a security person that goes around right sure, since yeah. everybody and their mom goes there taking pictures now it's like you can't go back there really anymore without getting busted right. but yeah it was creepy as fuck yeah you started a trend yeah I did mm-hmm. so you're welcome alright so moving on my next movie is Shutter Island from 2010 I knew this was coming yep mm-hmm. it's the uh, psychological thriller directed by Martin Scorsese starring none other than Leonardo DiCaprio give you a briefing about the institution. All I know is it's a mental hospital. But the criminally insane. Welcome to Shutter Island. You're hereby required to surrender your firearms. We are duly appointed federal marshals. But during your stay, you will obey protocol. Is that understood? We take only the most dangerous and damaged patients, ones no other hospital can manage. These are all violent defenders, right? It's a fun watch. It is like, a fun watch. Yeah. And it it's takes, kind of a dumb movie, but like, it's fun. It is fun. Yeah. And it was based on Dennis Lehane's novel of the same name. So Leonardo DiCaprio plays U.S. Marshal Edward Teddy Daniels, who is investigating a psychiatric facility on Shutter Island after one of the patients goes missing. Mark Ruffalo plays his partner. Mm-hmm. And Ben Kingsley plays the facility's lead psychiatrist. Do you have anything you want to talk about it? Only, only the end. So, well, go ahead. I want, Surprise! Right. He's a patient. Right. Yeah. He's not there to investigate at all. He's a patient, and what are they, they're letting him fake work like he's working a because they think for that if he can resolve the issue in itself, then right. he'll what correct himself or something. So what happened was that correct me if I'm wrong, but his wife killed herself mm-hmm. and their kid too, and he just lost his fucking mind. Yep, yep. And yeah, so they, they were trying like to work him. later. Yeah, yeah. This was part of his therapy to look like he was investigating this facility, but he was actually a patient there. Right. 
and Mark Ruffalo was his real partner, but was helping his therapy. And I think, you know, it played on the tropes of the creepy shit that happens in asylums and that, you know, like Ben Kingsley might be a sinister administrator. And it turns out it was all this was just to help his therapy. So none of that was true. So it was like a twist on that. I didn't expect the ending. And usually I'm pretty good at knowing something's coming, even if I don't. And I was like, what? Like... Oh, so surprise. Well, here's what happened with me. I feel like I, I'd know it now just because that's kind of turned into a thing. It's it like the patient a is actually, you know, the yeah. person actually that patient. Right. Well, and anytime someone says there's a twist, because somebody I heard said there was a twist. Mm-hmm. There's only one twist to something like that. I guess that makes sense. You yeah. know, I actually saw it on opening night, so... I saw it sometime later during the opening weekend, but not the night. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'd heard, oh, there's a lot of twists in there. And I'm like, let me guess. Right. Sure. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. It is a fun little thriller. It's a good movie. Yeah. You know, I think it's lesser tier Scorsese overall, but it's not a bad film. Yeah. And it's got some creepy moments. Mm -hmm. It does flip that insane asylum trope on its head a little bit. And it's, it's got some twists to it that we just spoiled. So, yeah. But you know what? You should have seen it by now. That's all I got to say. Yeah. The next movie you want to talk about, and I only got a couple left. This one is Sucker Punch from 2011. I didn't see it. It's a a fantasy film directed by Zack Snyder, and which should say all it needs to say about that. But it was his first original concept, which hopefully is his last. But it's about a young woman who's committed to a mental institution, and in order to cope, she envisions the asylum as a, a brothel and teams up with four dancers slash prisoners to escape before she undergoes a lobotomy. As she collects the items she needs for escape, she enters another level of fantasy in which the women become strong, experienced warriors. It's really just some girl's fantasy in her head that's about to get lobotomized in an abusive insane asylum. That's, and the, the movie takes place like in the 50s. kind of like Shutter Island takes place, I think, mid-50s. I think that's correct, yeah. Um, Sucker Punch also takes place in like that kind of 50s time frame. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she just has these fantasies about fighting stuff. And you think she's actually going to fight to get out and it's really I think she ends up getting lobotomized or something I don't remember it's, it's a, a friend, shitty yeah. fucking movie but it's part of those tropes uh, again abusive administrators and you know creepy freaking insane asylum and just fun fact the movie was like really negatively reviewed I don't think it did very well in theaters and you know Rotten Tomatoes gave it like a 23% so fuck that movie but it is important at the time frame if you notice like I said it's a mid 50s movie and that'll be important as we go forward I'll tell you why mm-hmm. so my last thing that I want to talk about is a TV show actually called American Horror Story mm-hmm. and this one is the Asylum season yeah so season 2 Asylum American Horror Story is an FX television show it's really popular I guess a lot of people like it I've seen I saw season 1 I saw whatever the freak show um, season was of course too. you would have yeah. seen that one Doy. of course you would have seen that one but this one okay I it doesn't, make any sense. It doesn't make any yeah, fucking yeah. sense. It's so weird. They have a lot of returning characters on the show, whatever. But this Asylum one has all these different twisty plot points. But to point out a few of them, one of the doctors is a former Nazi who experiments on people. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's the Ilsa of this yeah. show. Um, and he makes like these mutated monsters that are cannibals and live outside the institution, of course. There's another doctor who may be like a serial killer. And then they have a character in here named, I think her name's Lana, who is a journalist that goes into the facility to learn the truth about uh-huh, what's going sure, on. Yeah. So another so Nellie Bly, back, yeah. shot quarter type of thing. So it's like they took every trope they could find from, you know, historical insane asylums. Because I know they have shock therapy, they, you know, all this other torture methods in this asylum and just threw it in one season of the show. That's kind of what the show is, basically. Is it's it, all yeah. the tropes kind of rolled into one thing and they don't really make a lot of sense. And that's right. kind of, that's the draw of the show, basically. This is batshit insane. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so this one basically does the same thing. But what's interesting to note: so this season takes place in the '60s, 
And again, you know, that's important because if you notice the last three movies I talked about, or at least the three examples I talked about, they're all modern produced films and TV shows, but their depictions of mental institutions are all historic. Because there basically aren't any anymore. Right, so, because yeah. aren't there anymore. And these methods and torturous methods that were supposedly going on or, or have a history or, you know, the stigma happened back then. Right. So this is where I'm leaving this topic. It seems that insane asylums never really had a chance. When it comes to depictions on screen, they are overwhelmingly negative because of the horrible history they have, which is, is based on some truth. It's not like it's unjustified, but still. When the first persons with mental disabilities were housed and treated, knowledge of mental illnesses were, I mean, just unknown. Mm-hmm. Back when people had spiritual disorders, they had very, very barbaric ways of dealing with it. It's They didn't have medical knowledge. As time went by, better means of treatment came available, like medicines and whatnot. But unfortunately, we did have the early history of shock treatment, which I'm not saying the early, early ones weren't bad. Right. But regardless of how good it got, that stigma was never going to go away. Yeah, sure. Shocking someone in the brain is kind of like, it doesn't, just doesn't seem like, have a nice ring to it. It doesn't. You know? It really doesn't. And so that will never go away. And of course, yep. lobotomies, holy shit. Right. That is bad. That's and I realize fucked up, yeah. it's fucked That's up. brain surgery. Like, it's brain surgery yep. and ultimately changed everything about a person to where they're just like lethargic, fucking zombies right Right. (laughs) or at least that's the depiction but yeah they're not good and luckily as soon as a better way came along they abandoned the shit out of them but again the whole idea of a lobotomy is that's horror story shit right I mean, sure, movies like Girl Interrupted existed, or Snake Pit, for that matter, that were out there that at least showed there was some sort of positivity to getting treatment. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, these stereotypes persist with the nurse with the iron fist. The one movie everyone thinks of when you're talking about psychiatric institutions or insane asylums is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So, you know, nothing cements a stereotype more than a a well-made, well-acted, Oscar-winning movie. It's a wonderful movie, but it also cemented, I think, a lot of the worst actors aspects of mental institutions yeah. and that's not going anywhere yeah absolutely yeah so that's all i got for this topic what do you think uh, this is a super fascinating uh, episode so yeah well thank you so if you notice real quick I, there's a lot of movies i left out that you probably thought i would add i'm going to talk about one in particular which was 12 monkeys mm-hmm. now i left that out because really a third of that movie is in a mental institution yeah, sure. it's a good one though i mean it's got brad pitt crazy and it's a very gilliam-esque institution mm-hmm. you know because it's such a bizarre environment and also it had a trope you know where bruce willis is not a crazy person but he's in this mental institution he's a real time traveler but no one of course believes him they think he's crazy so he's sort of stuck in this this whole thing so again i was trying to stick with at least the primary location being a mental institution and 12 monkeys has got yeah certainly part of that but a lot of it's elsewhere and i was just like yeah i'll leave it out anyway that's Insane Asylums. Great. I hope AJ likes it. Yeah. Please give me your feedback, AJ, and anybody else who has suggestions or other movies that they wished I talked about or is good for this subject. Yeah, let us know what you think. All right, well, thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Yes, the modern state hospital is no longer the prison asylum of yesterday. It's a city where the sick can become well again. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today along with pictures, videos, and additional resources as well as Sunday Slum Day, our weekly recommendation for the best and sometimes worst films every Sunday night. If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter where we share out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies.
was originally called the Public Hospital for Persons of Insane. <laughs> Hold on. I got to say this again. <laughs> Don't <laughs> laugh when you say it. That's <laughs> terrible. Is serious. It's this really, is serious. It is serious. Okay. 